Hi everyone, it's Frankie here. Before we get into the episode, I have a very exciting announcement to make. I'm participating in three events at the Farnham Literary Festival in March. If you don't know where Farnham is, that's okay, a lot of people don't. But it's a really beautiful village in Surrey that is also very cultured with its own literary festival. The first panel I'm involved with is on the 2nd of March and I'll be reuniting with my favourite spy writing pals to moderate Writing Spies in the Shadow of Bond. This is the panel that we did at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival last year and it was so much fun we decided to get the band back together and do it again. So that will involve the brilliant Greg Moss, Jack Dewars, Ava Glass and Tim Glister. Then on the 10th of March, I'll be moderating a scarily good panel on why we can't get enough of gothic fiction with the incredible Anna Mazzola, William Hussey, Louise Davidson, Essie Fox and Michelle Paver. These are huge names in the gothic writing world and I'm so excited for this one. And as you might know, I also do another podcast called The Labours of Hercule, which is all about the greatest television show in the world, Agatha Christie's Poirot. My wonderful co-host, Adam Roach of the Secret History of Hollywood podcast and so many other wonderful ones, are going to be doing our very first ever in-person live event for our podcast. There we'll be discussing Poirot, podcasting, murder mysteries and so much more. If you'd like to come along to any of these events or you want to check out the full programme of events, have a Google of the Farnham Literary Festival or I'll stick the links for my events in the show notes of this episode. If you fancy coming along, it would be so lovely to see you there. Please come and say hello and also please, please smile at me from the crowd because I will be very nervous. That's enough of me for now. Let's get on with the episode. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Hi everybody and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie and today I am delighted to be joined by the wonderful Susan Allott. Hello. Hi Susan. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. Good. Have you uh, been enjoying this very spooky gothic weather we've been having lately? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) I quite like the winter when you get those really cold, bright days. Yeah. But the the rain and the dark can get in the bin. I'm bored of that. I'm so bored of being cold. Yeah. So bored of being cold. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, as fun as weather chat is, that's not what we're here for. So uh, everyone's thinking, oh, dear God, please stop. So what I will do instead is read the little bio I have about you, and then we can talk a bit about way more exciting things such as your new book. So let's go with that. Susan Allott finished her first novel, The Silence, after completing the Faber Academy course. It was widely acclaimed and longlisted for the new Blood Dagger. The House on Rye Lane is her second novel. The House on Rye Lane is a tense, taut, beautifully crafted novel about the treachery of secrets and the many ways the past can echo into the present. They thought they'd found their dream house. They were wrong. I love a line like that. So good. (laughs) 2008, the house Maxine and Seb have just bought was a bargain, a huge Georgian townhouse on the edge of Peckham Rye. It needs a lot of work, but Max couldn't resist it. Now they're in, though, nothing seems to be going right. And as the problems mount up, 
Max starts to doubt her relationship as well as her decision. Is Seb all he seems to be? And why are the neighbours so evasive about the house's previous owner? 1994. Cookie and his parents have been forced by his dad's gambling debts to move into the attic room of the big old house as lodgers. Tensions run high between them and their elderly landlady, and there's something odd about the place that Cookie can't quite seem to put his finger on. 1843. Horatio built this house for his beloved wife, who then died in mysterious circumstances. After a second death on the premises, both his servants and the locals are starting to talk. Horatio's grief is tinged with shame and guilt. What is he hiding? And will the house ever be free of his legacy? Da-da-da! <laughs> <laughs> Outside of writing, Susan lives in South London with her two children and her husband. As well as being a talented writer and offering mentorship for aspiring authors, Susan is very kind, generous with her time, and has grown some very impressive tomatoes in her garden. Where did you get that from? Oh, I got that from having a little stalk of your Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that was the tomato part, the kind part I obviously took from Goodreads. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> was that all fairly accurate? Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Good. You're welcome. And they are very impressive tomatoes. They are, aren't they? Yeah, it actually mm. is my husband who I should give the credit to for the tomatoes, but I take photos of them and post them on Instagram. They're very good photos, so you could take the credit for that at the very least. Yeah, I will. <laughs> good, as you should. So, the house on Rye Lane. Wow, what a beautiful atmospheric piece of writing that is. I was hooked from the start on it. Oh, thank you. I imagine you've probably talked about this a lot, but where did the idea for it come from? I, saw, I sort of got the idea for it while I was still in the middle of my first novel, The Silence, which tends to happen. I think you're, you hit a difficult bit in the, in the novel that you're writing and you suddenly have this idea that becomes, you know, tempting. And we were having our house done. We were having the loft done. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there was brick dust everywhere. And I had one of those kind of, hmm, what if dot, dot, dot thoughts. I can't tell you precisely what I thought because it would be a spoiler. <laughs> yes. Yep. <laughs> but that's that's when I had the thought of, of that kind of hook, if you like. And although actually for a long time, I wasn't sure where I was going to set it. I sort of thought vaguely oh, I'll set it in London um, because I live in London. But London's a big place and it's got a lot of history. And eventually I just narrowed it down to the sort of square half a mile <laughs> in which I live. It's very convenient. <laughs> Probably um, that decision coincided with lockdown, actually, when my world yeah. became very small. Yeah. And then I, I kind of knew that I could handle that little bit of, of London. Makes the research easier too, I imagine. Yeah. Although I managed to, you know, still get massively bogged down in research for a year or two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's surprising, actually. It, just this small bit of turf has, has got oodles of history. God, no, I can imagine. That's the thing. I mean, London, being as old as it is with everything that's gone through over the years, every patch has got history, hasn't it? So I can only imagine somewhere like Peckham Rye as well has had a really interesting background. Yeah. Yeah. What was the most interesting thing you learned through your research? Well, there's a, there's a pub which features in the book called The King's Arms. And I, I didn't kind of put all of its history into the book because it just would have been research for the sake of it really it would have felt like research and and I don't like that but mm. that pub has really been through it it got bombed during World War II like a direct hit onto wow. that pub 
you know, dozens of people died, you know, they were in there having a proper night. Yeah. Um, And so people, it got, um, for a long time, it was just a kind of bomb site. Then it got rebuilt um, and people people said that they could hear a ghost in that pub. Um, They could hear someone playing the piano at night. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. were they pl- was it playing it well? I don't know. Because <laughs> that would be really upsetting if it was really bad, like yeah. chopsticks or something. You're like, oh, yeah. my God. This I don't know. But regardless, it would be very spooky, wouldn't it, to hear yes. that? And then I think I did obviously put in the book that for a long time it was a real kind of den of iniquity. Yeah. And then it was, again, pulled down and, and made into flats. And that's the thing about London is it's just got layers and layers of history. Every single building, every patch of land has had something else on it before where all sorts of things happened. And that's kind of where I I got fascinated with the history of this house. And it kind of went from there. That's so true, isn't it? When you walk around London, if you just look up and you see the old parts of buildings that still exist under these, on top of these new bits, or like a random plaque or something that you would never noticed before. You're like, oh, God, that's... Exactly. Yeah. Mad. Yeah. That's interesting. You made an interesting point about doing all this amazing research and having not, and you can't put all of it in the book. But is that a struggle sometimes to be like, oh, this uh, this bit's really good. I really want to squeeze it in. But how do you balance interesting research versus staying true to your story? Mostly, I I always know that's interesting, but it's not going in the book. And somehow, it, I think it kind of still enriches the book anyway because. I don't know, it kind of gives you a confidence as you're writing that you just, you know what you're talking about. Mm. I really did want to slip in the theory that, how do you pronounce it? Is it Boudicca or Boudicca? Who knows? Which Both. Her Boudicca. Yeah. That she, that she died on Peckham Rye and that her body is buried under that, under Peckham Rye Commons. Yeah. Some- wow. And I managed to squeeze that in. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I learned that from your book. So I didn't know that before. <laughs> Well, it's wow. a theory. We'll, we'll have to dig it up to find out if it's true. Oh, if only you were. <laughs> I'd love to just go and dig. Like, like, have you ever done like mudlarking or anything like that? I'd love to. No, do that. but I love the idea of that as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's go mudlarking. Let's figure out. Let's do that. Okay. We'll, we'll just start digging up parts of Peckham Rye, whichever yeah. is safer <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you always had an interest in like historical fiction? Because although this is a you know, a, a a fiction book, there is a heavy history to it. Has that always been your, your main draw? No, I think what my what my main draw is, is I, I just like books which have got a thread of truth in them, even though they're fiction. And that's what I did with my first one, with The Silence. It's got that mm. storyline about the stolen generation and the story, you know, the book itself is is completely made up, but that but that happened. And, you know, there there were obviously historical details within the book that that I researched and that were true as well. And so I kind of, I don't know why, I just like that idea of of fiction with kind of an interesting nugget of historical fact within it. And I just kind of, I don't know, I get get a little shiver of excitement at at the idea of doing that. It helps me to stay interested in my book, I guess. And it helps, you know, I do quite enjoy the research as well. So that helps me to keep the whole thing going yeah and as you said like it further builds your confidence in what you're writing about then if you can have that research in your in your mind at least to back up what you're writing I guess yeah it does it does that to some extent Mm. although I'm not a historian and I um (laughs) this note to the house on Rye Lane that I was living with this 
I don't know what was wrong with me, but I was terrified the whole time I was writing that I'd got it wrong and I was going to have to abandon the whole book because the House on Ray Lane is a, um, there's a, a timeline about a man called Horatio in 1843 and he's obsessed with the River Peck and the miasma that it's giving off. And there's a, if you Google the River Peck, it will tell you that the River Peck was covered over in 1820 something. And um, all my research was telling me that that was wrong and that it didn't actually get covered over until more like 1860. Oh, wow. Which is a real nerdy geek <laughs> fact that I'm the only one who cares. No, it was, it's amazing. <laughs> it mattered to me and it mattered to me that the book was accurate. And so I had some sleepless nights about that until a lovely local historian told me that he had also researched it and that I was right. Oh, sleep well that <laughs> night. What a relief. Also, yeah. you just know that some dickhead on the internet is going to be like, uh, actually, I think you'll find. So you want to make yeah. sure you're like, no, actually, I'm right. Yeah, exactly. No, I know. cover all bases <laughs> and sleep well for it. One of the things that's so interesting about the book is the way that you cover so many different characters at different points in history and different tones of voices, obviously different styles. That must have been a real challenge, though. How do you approach writing in the 1800s versus modern day? Yeah, with difficulty. Um, <laughs> you made it look very easy. So <laughs> Good, thank you. <laughs> because I didn't want him to sound too oldie-worldy. But I, at the same time, I obviously didn't want him to sound modern. And so I had to just kind of read other books set in that period. And I, I relied on my editor a bit to tell me if she thought I would, I'd got that right or wrong. Yeah. So I kind of wanted him to, I wanted the modern reader to be able to feel connected to him and, and what he was going through. Um, but at the same time, I needed it to be convincing that he was, you know, a man of his time. So it was just kind of trial and error. And I'm glad you think I got it right. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, the good thing is, as you say, it's like you can tell it's of a different time, but it's not inaccessible with that. You know, Good. it's not like reading Chaucer or something no, where you're like, Jesus exactly. Christ. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got the perfect balance, I would say, and it just lends to that character and you can tell the distinct tone of voices across them. Yeah, exactly. And, and even regardless of the time frame, you need all of your characters to sound distinct. And I've mm. got quite a big cast. So I needed, you know, Ruth, for example, to sound different from Maxine. And yeah, I needed Seb to, to sound different from Horatio. And you, you kind of achieve that. Over, over time just by kind of keeping on writing in their voice and accessing their inner thoughts and, and sort of believing in them as, in, as distinct people. Um, and eventually that, that starts to work, but it's well, not easy. No, <laughs> it doesn't sound it at all. And as you said, you've got a big cast of characters there. You've got a lot of research on your mind. Is there a lot of planning that goes in in advance or do you tend to, to write and see how it goes? I'm somewhere between the two. I do, I do plan. So I knew, as I said, I had that hook idea quite early on, and I knew I knew the the main sort of bones of the plot before I started. But I always give myself permission to change my mind. And so, <laughs> you know, good. in terms, yeah, there's a there's a kind of I don't think it's a problem to say there's a murder on the first first page. Yeah, and the book to some extent is about who did that, and I kind of knew who who I thought had done it. But I wasn't entirely sure until I'd written that scene. You know, I kind of in the first draft stage and I thought, yeah, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> That's lucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Able to figure well, it out. Sometimes 
you have the idea that a character is going to do something and then when you've built up to it and you've developed that character, it comes to that point of the plot and you think, no, she just wouldn't do that or he just wouldn't say that or, and that's annoying. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. We've heard a few authors have said that as well, that the characters sometimes do things or say things that you would never have planned for, but it just works that way. So they become very real to you as you write them then. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. And sometimes you can make that work. You know, if you really need something to happen, Mm. you kind of just go back and I have done this, you know, go back and kind of rethink that character from scratch so that they end up doing what you need them to do. And sometimes that, you know, you have to give them a different name and everything. It's a complete rewrite, really. God. Is that quite hard to let go of it sometimes when you've built a character? You're like, oh, I really like that part, but it doesn't work. So you have to change it. I mean, it's very, very hard work, Mm. but at the same time, you can feel, I think, as you're doing those revisions, you can feel it starting to to come together and you know that it's it's worth it. Yeah. I always think we had a Nikki French on uh, a little while ago and I remember they were saying that they deleted some, they had to basically bin a manuscript at 90,000 words or something just because they were like, it wasn't working. And I always wonder though, like, I know they say like, kill your darlings. It's this whole thing of it shouldn't matter. It's got to be what's serving you best in the writing. But is there a bit of a a twinge of ow as you have to do that kind of work? Like, oh, ouch, that hurts. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. The worst one was with The Silence where that book is, it's still the same book, but the first few drafts, I had a character called Louisa who's still in, in the final draft, but for the first few drafts, for a long time, actually, she was kind of the main character. And I knew in my heart of hearts that her POV was not working. And at some point, I can't remember if it's because my agent said something or I I just had an epiphany. I just thought I'm going to I'm going to delete the chapters from written from her point of view, which was 50 percent of the book. Oh, ow. I can remember exactly where I was sitting. I was in the cafe. (laughs) (laughs) I felt so sick. But then the book worked quite quickly after that. So. It was okay, really. It was quite freeing in a way. A justified murder of that character and her tone of voice. (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh, as you say, you've got to do what's right for the book. And thank God it wasn't a, oh my God, I wish I hadn't done that (laughs) moment afterwards. Just delete them completely. You can always reinstate them. Yeah, thank God for technology. Jesus. (laughs) So with the process that you've described, which is a bit of planning, a bit of, a bit more kind of looseness to it to allow for creativity, I guess. What do you enjoy most and least about the writing process? I love editing. So I, and you know, when you're kind of at the umpteenth draft, I guess at the stage before it goes to the editor, you know, and you're you're confident, you know, your story, that's, and the magic happens at that point. That's, that's when it's, you start thinking actually that maybe this is quite good. I'm a genius. Look at me go. Actually a genius. (laughs) I knew it all along. I was right. And this just proves it. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and conversely, I hate the the first, I hate the first draft because I'm, I'm thinking, oh God, I'm really not very good at this. This is rubbish. And I, but you know, having, having written, having published two books now, I do know that that is just what it's like. That's what it feels like in the early drafts and it will become, fingers crossed, it will become <laughs> something that somebody will want to read at some point, but it's just awful. It's such a slog. And I just can't wait for it to be over, but it's, you've just got to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm a real, I love editing. Yes. Go back and fix it all up later and yeah. adjust. And as I said in your bio, you offer as well mentorship, which is very generous as well. On your website, you have a bit about that. 
And I wonder, what do you like to teach people from your experience of your first book and first draft there? Is there any particular piece of advice that you find is universally helpful for people? I do tend to tell people that, that they have to just keep pushing on through the first draft. Don't spend forever polishing your opening chapter because you'll probably delete it. (laughs) The first chapter is always the last chapter that I write. And people are quite kind of blown away and quite reassured by that fact. Yeah. And so, you know, if they're doing that thing where they're continually polishing the beginning and not cracking on, I do try and encourage them to to just push on through and, and get the draft finished. So it can help to sort of say, look, send me another six chapters in two months or whatever, you know, time frame they need, because that helps them to do I think if there's somebody waiting for your next few chapters, it helps you to to get them done um, and stop stop doing that endless polishing of the beginning. Yeah. So that's feels quite universally helpful for for people who are at that stage. I do a lot of helping people to find their hook, um, helping them to make sure that their hook is in the, if, if they're writing in the kind of crime thriller genre, really, you need your hook up front. Mm. A murder on the first page, for example. Murder on the first page. <laughs> and kind of signal what kind of book this is within the first paragraph, really. Yeah. And people find that helpful. Yeah. No, there's lo- got loads of useful bits of advice in there. And as you say, it's one of those things where you, when you read a finished book, you can't imagine that it was anything less than the way it is. So you have to sometimes check yourself and remember that it's humans writing it at the end of the day. And there'd have been a thousand edits in between. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's first draft is rubbish. They say that, but I just don't, you just can't imagine that being true. As someone when trying to write, you probably think I'm the only shit writer. Everyone else is amazing, right? <laughs> no, there are no shit. Writers. There are just people who haven't polished it yet polishing yeah. shit polishing <laughs> that's where that saying came from i've always wondered instead of that i guess why don't we talk about your characters because as you said there's a big old cast in there very interesting mix of people including i would say the house itself feels like a bit of a character yeah. a few people have said that yeah i quite like that as an idea Yeah. And I think that the idea that I was getting at was the idea that a house can kind of hold on to the things that have happened over the years in as a kind of emotional residue, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that I I don't know about you, but I've walked into a house and just gone, oh, God. (laughs) And I I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but it's definitely a feeling of that this place is aware of me. And it's very, very unnerving. So that's so that's kind of what I was aiming for, that that sense of unease with, with the house. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the question that I like to ask all the authors we have on is if you had to be one of the characters from, from your book, which I appreciate there's not a lot of nice options at your disposal here. <laughs> if, but if you had to... Uh, which character would you be and why? I think the safest thing is to just be a very, you know, background walk-on part. <laughs> <laughs> Peripheral to yeah. the story, yeah. Higher chance of survival. I do think, um, I think all of my characters have a seed of me in them. And, you know, obviously I kind of amplify certain traits so that eventually they don't feel like me anymore. But they start with a with that kind of little bit of me in them. I think that... The character who probably is me, you know, with with a few bits of fiction thrown in, is um, Maxine's older sister. I'm struggling to remember her name. I think her name is 
Yeah. She's a very minor character. I'll be her. <laughs> Nothing bad. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> you just hear about the awful things happening. Like, oh, and that's not nice. And, and yeah. quite a lot of me in her, I think. Yeah. Do you think to write a character, you have to put a bit of yourself in them? I certainly do. Yeah. Even, you know, the ones who do terrible things. I kind of love them all as well, even even the awful ones. Yeah. I don't believe that anyone is all bad. Um, they've, everyone's got good in them. So, yeah, they, they've all got got a bit of me. When I started writing The House on Rye Lane, my son was, I think he might have been 12 or 13, which tells you how long these things take. He's in sixth form now. Blimey. <laughs> and so I was, I was kind of going through some of the stuff that Ruth in the book is going through with the kind of transition and watching your child kind of grow up and feeling that you can't protect him anymore in the way that you used to when they're little, you know, you can't just pick them up and <laughs> and yeah. carry them out of danger kind of thing. And so I definitely started, as she was the first character, that was the first timeline that I wrote. And the first, the line that I wrote that has stayed in the book, I remember writing Ruth, something like, Ruth woke up, woke, up, woke up early on the morning of the murder. And I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> nice. Well, that, that takes me to my the question I was going to ask you was, what's a line that you've written lately or from your catalogue that you're especially proud of? Would that be your top choice? It might be, actually. Yeah. That's a good line, though. She woke early on the yeah. morning of the murder. And I sort of kept doing that with, with the, the chapters in the 90s. You know, you knew where you were in the time frame by whether it was a week before the murder or the day of the murder or so that kind of that kind of worked and I felt like I'd got the tone of it when I wrote that yeah I'll yeah. take that line <laughs> that's, a good... that's a very good line yeah and also it does what it does what you were just saying about in the crime genre in particular you've got to sell it right up front you want people to know exactly what they're dealing with here yes. there's a murder although I think that line ended up being the opening line of chapter the... eight or something that's right yeah but but keeping that theme yeah clear. the opening line of the book is it was the day of the murder so even more there you go. <laughs> to the point <laughs> Do you write chronologically? No. Really? That's interesting. No. So I I find it really difficult to, to, I'm not a, what's it called? I'm a completer finisher. I'm not the other extreme. I'm not a beginner. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the beginning of things because it feels like you've got a mountain to climb and that feels daunting. So no, the way I write is I write one timeline at a time and then I kind of patch it all together you know, like a, a patchwork quilt kind of thing. So I wrote the 90s first and I started with um, with the Delaney family who were living in the loft room of this creepy old house, all kind of squished up together because they've come into financial hardship. And I had Ruth waking up early and, you know, I was kind of straight into her head really. And then I wrote the 2008 timeline with Maxine and Seb who've moved in and you know the place is dilapidated, and they and they want to do it up. And then I, I kind of I, sometimes you think, oh, actually, I need another '90s chapter here to kind of make sense of that. And so you end up you end up doing a bit of both. And then the 1843 chapters were all written later. That's really interesting. So I guess that you write the begin like that beginning of the house's history, knowing what how it ends in effect. Um, Did it change? Did, did it inform a lot of how it started? In the house, I mean? I kind of knew the stuff that I wanted. I, I knew a bit of Horatio's story, but I don't think I 
fully knew it until I wrote it. So then I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to go back and change this and change that. But that always happens anyway. The whole thing doesn't doesn't fully make sense until you've got the whole of the first draft. And because I'd started with the 90s chapters, they were much more polished. And so they were kind of at the fifth draft stage while Horatio was still at first draft. And it was all a big kind of mess for <laughs> for a while. It made sense to me, but it wouldn't have made sense to anyone else. One day I want to write a really simple book with just <laughs> you know, one of those books that's just written from with one protagonist, you know, first person, just her, um, one one sort of type monologue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'd, I'd one woman show. Do that, but I, I don't my brain doesn't work that way. I was gonna say I don't think you you would be able to do that because you've got you're too you're too intelligent for your own oh, good. You've got too many it. layers. That must be it. You're genius and you're really too intelligent. That's what we figured out today. Okay, good. Nice <laughs> Good. Well, no, it's all very true. So that's really interesting. So with each each timeline that you wrote, you edited, you basically completed the timeline like for the 90s one and then moved on to the next one. It wasn't you weren't editing them all at the same time. I wouldn't say that I completed the 90s one, but it, but I had it to a stage where it wasn't first draft anymore. Wow. And I and then I kind of started afresh with 2008 and got that to a reasonably good state. And then and actually I was fighting the need to write the Horatio timeline. I was I was trying to weave his story in in a different way. And I eventually accepted that I was going to have to write it because I was scared of writing historical fiction. You know, I thought I don't know how to do it. And clearly you do. Well, I do now. Well, you've learned through doing and it's clearly paid off. Yeah. Obviously, this is out now, um, yeah. The House of Marley. Sure, yeah. And so are you working on your next book yet? Or are you going to have a little break? Do you have breaks? I don't really have breaks. <laughs> I've got that feeling. Yeah. You're too, too much of a genius uh, and you're too too intelligent. I think, I'm, I think I'm always writing, even if I'm not writing. Even if I'm hanging out laundry, I'm always writing. <laughs> and I've been kind of, I've got, I think I've got kind of three quarters of an idea Ooh. And I'm at that stage where I'm I'm sort of in love with the idea, but every time I sit down and, and try and put it on paper, I think, oh, it's not as beautiful as, as what I had in my head, which I know is just what happens and I've just got to <laughs> on. But yeah, I'm at that, at that, uh, that beginning stage trying to make it work. Sounds intriguing. Sounds exciting. Yeah, it kind of it is exciting. And I'm glad. I'm glad that I've got something which feels interesting. But yeah, I'm very much at the beginning. Looking forward to seeing where you end up with that when when the next book eventually comes. And with all your you, you're writing all the time, you do it. You work very hard. Do you have a lot of time for reading? Not as much as I'd like. Yeah, you know, and I and I kind of I end up reading just you know before I fall asleep and nodding off and only getting through five pages or whatever. I wish I had more time for reading. It's frustrating, but it's still, you know, my favourite thing. Yeah. And it's tough, isn't it? Because obviously now that you are a crime writer and it's a really wonderful, engaged community, you must be getting sent a lot of books to read as well. Yeah. um, And I don't get through them all at all. Yeah. When I'm writing, I'm really particular about what I read. Um, And um, so I probably would get sent more proofs if I read more of them, but I'm too kind of bogged down in my own stuff. And it's, it's really easy if you're not careful to absorb someone's voice and it's also easy to um to think what is the point of continuing to write when this is so perfect and brilliant and I could never do this so it's just not good (laughs) 
<laughs> not good for your mental state no, while you're in the I, middle I of something. Kind of just yeah, read nonfiction when I'm writing. You know, when I'm at that stage of of the book that I just need to focus on my own stuff. And I I read a lot of literary fiction because I just you know I'm in awe of people like Anne Enright. You know, and and I do think that actually, if you read the best, it helps you to up your game a bit. Somehow, it does seem to have that effect. But can you read a fiction book within the crime genre without having a bit of a red pen on it? Be thinking, oh, what have they done here? How and like trying to deconstruct it and figure it out. Can you can you just read it for pleasure, or is there is it ruined now? I'm always editing books in my head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't yeah. even. I can't even. I was for some reason I was looking at the start of the silence the other day and thinking I just want to give this a good edit. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that's the thing when you read back something you've written years ago, you've evolved since yeah, then. Absolutely. And yeah, I'm always yeah bits in my head. So yeah, it, it's hard. That's I think that's why I need to read books which are either completely out of my genre or completely out of my league. <laughs> so, that, so that I become absorbed in it and just read it without having my editor's head on. What's a book outside of the Genius League? I can't even imagine. But also we've had Robert Crace on the podcast before and he said the same thing. He cannot read fiction while he's writing. It has to be nonfiction. Yeah, Yeah, because I think the same reason, I guess you don't want to accidentally steal someone's idea without even realising it. At the same time, you need to stay on top of what's out there. Yeah, you know it's tricky. Especially when you are coming up with a new idea, you need to know if someone else has already done that. It's a tricky old balance, isn't it? Yeah. It's a writing thing. And with that in mind, what was the last book that you read and loved? I, I read a few really good books over the summer. I read, I'm so late to the party, but I'm fine with that. I read Station Eleven. <laughs> oh, that's a great book. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. And then, and it, it was funny because I was on holiday and my phone got nicked. <laughs> oh no, that's not funny. <laughs> well, it, it's kind of funny because... I just ploughed through three books back to back and I haven't done that for years. I probably haven't done that since I had a mobile phone. Wow. Yeah. And I think possibly because I just wasn't distracted at all. I just loved them. You know, I think I think I've managed to kind of lose myself in in books um, in a way that I haven't done for a long time. So that was amazing. But I do actually think Station Eleven is brilliant. It wasn't. It is. I'd lost my phone. (laughs) (laughs) It was only helped further by the phone loss. Yeah. 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 No, that that's a great pick. Oh, Susan, it's been it's been so lovely chatting to you and I'm so sad that I now have to uh confront you with a terrible thing that you've done. Oh. Yeah. Um, bit awkward actually. Yeah, because uh and look, you know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> so that you know what you've done because unfortunately, Susan, you have committed a terrible crime. Oh, you mean that cold-blooded murder that I committed? She confesses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That, okay, so that, that answers the next question of what terrible, heinous crime you've committed. It was a murder. I told you I was an oversharer. <laughs> well, now we've got it recorded. So, oh. Okay, so you've committed murder. I would, I mean, your legal counsel would advise you not to give any yeah, more details than that. I'm not saying anything that. else. I'm, I'm okay. a lawyer. Right, fair enough. But it was a, ba- it was a bad, um, bad enough, gruesome enough murder that unfortunately you have now been sentenced to death. Oh, okay. God, right. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have confessed. I thought I didn't think we still did that in this country. They bought it back just for you oh, because it was God. so bad. I, mean, that, I know. That's harsh. Yeah. I mean, the murder was arguably quite harsh. I, mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but you know, oh, it's not God. usually. The Is there any chance that thing. I'm going to get away with it? Do you think? 
I'm afraid not. No. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It, only only because it would ruin my future questions right. if you did. Okay. okay. Yeah. Right. But but I have to say, some authors have tried to find creative ways around it. Okay. With a few things, but so we'll see what you do with this. But basically, it's not all bad news though, Susan, because the good news is I can get you the death row meal of your dreams. Oh, that's Yay. all right. Then. <laughs> Worth it. Uh, so congratulations. What would your death row meal be? Um, so I'm definitely going to die, Russ. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> well, we we'll we get to that in a minute. But yes, it's looking pretty likely okay. at this stage. Well, I'm just going to have a massive banquet in that case. Like, I, what, what genre of banquet? Like Henry VIII? Oh, or? Henry VIII banquet with like the hog on a spit. <laughs> <laughs> Turkey leg? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Just eating with your bare hands. I... Love it. of wine. Yeah, definitely channeling that Henry VIII vibe. That's brilliant. That's We've never had, shockingly, we've never <laughs> had the Henry VIII banquet option chosen before. <laughs> when you said banquet, I thought you were going to say a Chinese banquet because we've had a few of those. Oh, God, no, no. I want, no. I want to have goose fat dripping down my chin. <laughs> <laughs> that could be what kills you before we do it oh, the uh, okay. old-fashioned way All right well that in that case i'm gonna just drink tankard after tankard of wine and just knock myself out for the whole thing and hopefully okay notice the noose yeah oh noose okay you've got you're going for a noose you're going old school okay yeah, yeah, right. yeah i feel like i feel old school about the whole thing i mean so old school henry the eighth's pretty old school yeah, yeah <laughs> so, exactly. wow okay I don't know why i'm old school but that that's working for me i feel better about okay <laughs> good okay well it feels like you have an element of control if you're picking yeah, the methods i suppose it, yeah okay great great <laughs> it's not the word to say well okay we'll hang you fantastic uh, <laughs> well unfortunately the worst has now happened and you are dead oh which is really sad and i'm really sorry but more good news susan uh-huh. because i'll bury you with a book of your choice what book would you be buried with I think I, I, since we since we've gone really dark now, I'm yeah. going Shirley Jackson. Who? Is, yep. Uh, which one? A fellow genius. Yes. Yep. <laughs> you, you just you two together. Yeah. <laughs> so my favourite book of hers is um, "We Have Always Lived in the Castle." Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm taking right. that with me. Perfect choice. Uh, did you watch Haunting of Hill House and all of those series inspired no, I by it? I think I have watched that actually. I have, um, I've watched a film about Shirley Jackson. I can't remember who plays her, but it's really good. Absolutely. Elizabeth. The series is quite good if um, you wanted to do that sort of thing, but you can't now because you're dead. Oh, so sorry. that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> but you can read the book in your coffin. Um, yeah. Good. I'm glad that I'm going to have that kind of death where I can read once. Yeah. Yeah. I'll pop a reading light in there. Oh, brilliant. You. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting whenever we ask this question because we've had people t- re- read that question in different ways. Some people are like, well, it's a book I'll be reading in the afterlife. Others are like, oh, well, what if it if people dig me up and they think that I'm uncouth or, un, you know, unsophisticated? I have to have something impressive in there. Or others have been like, well, I need like a practical guide to how to bring myself back to life. Like I think Fiona Cummins chose a book about becoming a vampire okay. so she could get tips. Oh, I didn't ha- I didn't go that way. I was just thinking about what would be a good companion in a coffin. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love the darkness of it. I think yeah. it's perfect. Oh, well, it's a real shame that uh, you had to die, Susan, because it it's been so lovely chatting to you <laughs> today. And you've done a phenomenal job with with your wonderful book. 
And it's, as it's out now, is that correct? On all good bookshops? Hardback is out in the UK, in all good bookshops and online. I think I think in Australia it's coming out at the end of this month. I don't know if you have any Australian listeners. I do have a few. Yeah. yeah. And good day. And in the good day. And in <laughs> the US it's out in March. Fantastic. So everybody needs to go out and buy the house on Rye Lane right now. Hardback capacity. Uh, and where can people find you on the internet to follow you? Um, so on X, very modern saying X and not Twitter. Oh, yes. I'm at Susan Allot. <laughs> I thought you were old school. I can't believe that. I know. <laughs> I just about got used to it. And yeah. on Instagram, I'm at Susan Allot author. And on Facebook, I'm at S Allot author, all one word. Wonderful. Yeah. And you've got a great website as well. I have. I have. SusanAllot.com. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Really excited to see what this little idea that you've got germinating turns into later down the line as well. Will you come back when it's of a course. fully grown thing? I mean, obviously being dead, that might be tricky. But if- I've got two Ouija boards in this room, Susan. <laughs> okay. We're good. Don't worry, I got you. <laughs> certainly will. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you to everybody for listening. You can follow Red and Buried Podcast on pretty much all the social channels, or you can email us at redandburiedpodcast at gmail.com. And that's all for now. Susan, another thing is I never know how to end these episodes. It's always very awkward. Can you think of how we should edit? Edit? Oh my God, I can't even say the words. Can you think of how we should end this episode? I think we should just say goodbye and thanks and see you soon. Can't do better than that. What she said. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Bye then. Bye. How would you like to challenge your little grey cells while revelling in the vintage perfection of David Suchet's Poirot? If so, then the Labours of Hercule podcast was made for you. We're taking a deep dive into every episode of this masterpiece of television and giving you the clues you need to solve the case along with Poirot himself. We present the case and you solve it. Whether you're a detective in the making or if you just simply want to gush over the genius and art decodence of Agatha Christie then subscribe now to the Labours of Hercule wherever you get your podcasts